This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists and why they do what they do. Greetings from beautiful Long Beach, California. I've been here for the past few days to attend the Pow Wow Festival, thanks to the city of Long Beach, which really is an event worth attending if you're out in the LBC. Long Beach is not only home to the likes of Sublime and Snoop Dogg, but also my favorite airport in the world. My guests for this episode are three very interesting musicians, Scott Stapp, Bananarama singer Karen Dallin, and Todd Rundgren. First up is my chat with Todd Rundgren, who this fall will be part of the It Was 50 Years Ago Today tour with Mickey Dolenz, Jason Sheff, Joey Mollen from Badfinger, and Christopher Cross. On that tour, you'll be hearing Todd play all of the Beatles' White Album, in addition to some of his own hits. Todd spoke with me about that tour and what else is coming up for him. That was my third time interviewing him, and he remains one of my favorite songwriters and producers of all time. Hey, Todd, how's it going there? Pretty good. Well, thank you very much for taking the time first and foremost. So I first want to ask you about, it was 50 years ago today tour. How long ago did you find out that you would be doing the tour? Well, I think we've been talking about it for, oh, probably a year. Possibility has been uh, there for a year, but the question of scheduling and stuff was a little more recent. And I had the pleasure of seeing you on the A Walk Down Abbey Road tour. Is it the same team that produced this tour as that one? From a production standpoint, yeah. Um, that's probably the reason why me and Christopher Cross are both on it as well. <laughs> that's of the history that we've had with that other um, with that other production. So. And is it the same kind of format where you guys are definitely doing a key album but also playing your hits? Yeah, I think that, well, we got five guys. Uh, and between us, we each do two songs. So, yeah, ten uh, non-Beatles songs and the rest of them all from the White Album. Well, I've had the pleasure of seeing you live a bunch of times over the years at Westbury Music Fair, and every time I've seen you, it's been a totally different show, a totally different format to the show, and it's always been really, really refreshing. And so with this tour coming up, are you itching at all to do another solo tour, or are you just really taking it one tour at a time? Well, I just got off the road from uh, from the Individualist Tour, which was essentially a combination concert tour and book promotional tour. So normally I'd probably be looking at another at least four or five months of touring during the year. But um, as you mentioned, I've been out quite a lot uh, of recent and... We figure it's time for me to take a little break, you know, maybe until next summer. So for the rest of the year, the Abbey Road thing is the only thing that I'll be doing. And I won't be going out again until at least maybe May of next year. Now, when you say take a break, you recently put out that song, Blow Me With Red Peters. But does a break yeah. for you mean, hey, I'm not going to be making music, I'm not going in the studio? Or does that mean that you're doing studio work in that downtime? It means I'll be, you know, I'll be working on other projects, uh, but they won't involve me being on the road so much. Um, I'm still doing collaborations with other artists, so that gives me a little bit more room to do that. 
I've got a sort of an art project, original work that's going to be mounted in Holland next year. So I've got that to work on. There is uh, a number of other little side projects that require more or less of my attention um, that don't involve touring. So, yeah, there's plenty for me to do besides being on the road. And as a matter of fact, when I'm on the road, I don't accomplish as much as I do when I'm at home. Going back to your recording career, I really like the White Knight album and not just the music itself, but the concept where you were able to show that you can collaborate with all sorts of people from all sorts of genres of all ages. Was that a wonderful experience in retrospect or is it just so much work with all the logistics and the collaborations? No, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of a lot of something that I don't normally do, which is co-writing. Principally because I get very sort of insular when I um, when I get around to you know to composing an album of my own or something like that, and so I mostly go off someplace by myself. So the opportunity to collaborate remotely kind of it allowed me to have that alone time, you know, to to live with the musical ideas. But it also kept me from being in like an echo chamber and only hearing my own ideas. So uh, when I would get something from uh, another artist, and it would be something you know more or less unexpected, that was that would get me excited because it would it would be a challenge to me to try and figure out how do I finish this thing. You know, often the songs are something that the other artists had worked on for a while and then kind of gave up and it never made it to completion. And so when I get a chance to listen to it, it suddenly becomes fresher. And uh, I haven't had to go through the whole process of moving something um, from nothing up until that particular uh, stage of evolution, let's say. So it's more like a rather than what what you would think of as McCartney and Lennon, you know, where they sit down and bounce ideas off of each other. It's more like a relay race, you know, where you do a leg and then you hand off the baton to somebody else and then they do the next leg. And then sometimes, you know, you hand the baton back for other, other sort of uh, improvements or alterations or something like that. But it takes the pressure off of being in the same room with someone else and having to try and produce something um, within that kind of compressed time period. I have to imagine you're the only artist to collaborate with both Trent Reznor and Hall and & Oates, which says a lot about your versatility as an artist. So when you're collaborating with another artist, is it always that you start it and they continue it? Or does it really just change on the situation? No, it's completely different depending on the situation. I mean, sometimes I would get something that was, let's say, a whole song, but no melody or words over it. <clears throat> and then I might take that and rearrange it because, uh, well, people just naturally hear things differently. And what someone might think is a chorus for a song, I might hear as a verse. And so I'll switch things around a little bit. Then there'll be some instances where I will record a song and just hand it off to somebody to make some maybe minor personal uh, adjustments to and then deliver a performance. 
So, yeah, it's, there's a variety of different ways. There was only one instance in which it was that kind of Lennon-McCartney interaction, and that was Tinfoil Hat with Donald Fagan because we just happened to be here in Kauai at the same time. And I had I was finishing up White Night, and I had one song left over that I thought probably was not going to make it onto the record. And I sent it to him, and he started sending titles back to me, and then... We had a couple of sit downs to come out with, come up with some lyrics for the song, and then I recorded his vocal, and that was it. So that was the only song that was seemingly like uh, a traditional um, uh, songwriting collaboration in which two people were in the same room at the same time. I had the pleasure of seeing your Utopia Live concert special on Access TV a couple of months ago. I know it was a DVD and a home video release beyond that. It's amazing to me how you remember so many songs in so many styles and all that. But are you creative beyond the musical realm, or does music get all of your creativity? Well, when we do these these larger shows, it involves me more as a kind of a, you know, as a producer not just a record producer, but, you know, I usually am the one to come up with the videos for the shows as well. So I go back to video production, which I had a, a partnership with a company called New Tech back in the late 80s and the early 90s, which I did uh, essentially all computer animations uh, and generated about, you know, maybe a half a dozen or so different things uh, to my music as well back in the um, about 1990 or so, 89, 1990. So I go back to that when we do some, uh, do a, uh, a presentation or a show that involves a lot of video, I wind up going back to my video production days as well. And as far as creativity in general, you know, I usually have an opinion about what other people do, but I don't necessarily have the skill to do everything. Um, I can tell when somebody's a good or a bad actor, but I have never really um, attempted to have a career as an actor or anything like that. So um, I would say, yeah, I have an artistic sensibility, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm able to create in uh in anything that I want to. But uh, the tour that I saw of yours last, you were dancing on that tour. Did you have anything to do with the choreography? Uh, no, that's usually uh, Michelle. Um, my wife does the choreography because she's actually a dancer. And I met her when she was dancing for the tubes back in the early 80s. And she has also appeared in my tours as a background singer and as a dancer. And on the more recent um, shows, she doesn't dance anymore, but she does uh, audition and choreograph any dancers that I do use. And then I believe you and Michelle have worked together on the Tiki Bar of yours. Can you tell me more about that? I assume it's still in business? Uh, it is in business. In fact, she just now left to go deal with some issue there. <laughs> It, I'm not in the restaurant business, um, but Michelle, when we moved out here to Hawaii and we got into sort of serious family raising and stuff like that, um, her touring life uh, more or less uh, ended and she wanted to have a place to perform. So 
originally what is now the the um, tiki bar slash restaurant was supposed to be um, more of a tiki club where she could uh, every night go and um, or any night that she felt like could go and perform for people. As it turned out, the, uh, during the process of getting the whole place set up, you know, there were zoning issues, competition from other uh, businesses, you know, who were afraid that she would hurt their business if she was able to do live music. So <laughs> after all the work she went through, she opened the restaurant up, but was not allowed to have live music in the restaurant. Now that may change at some point because a lot of stuff has changed. But this is always her idea. She did all the work. She found the investors. She runs the place. I do not have any interest or never have had any interest in being a restaurateur. So I like to disabuse people of the idea that I somehow had the idea to do this or that I invested any work or significant finances or anything like that. And it's all her thing, really. And in the terms of the Hawaii chapter of your life, are you intersected into the Shep Gordon Hawaii at all? Or are you entirely independent of that? Well, we have... Uh, being that my wife is in the restaurant business and being that I also have, even before that, had an association with a lot of, with chefs and stuff, because chefs like music and, and if you show some interest in what they're doing as well, you can develop, you know, a, a relationship and want, suddenly find yourself eating really well at the chef's table a lot, so... We do have a relationship with Shep. Well, I've had a relationship with Shep since the 70s because I, um, a very early version of Utopia, toured briefly with Alice Cooper. Um, so I knew Shep from back then when he was managing Alice. But Shep, uh, who, is now, who now manages mostly chefs, <laughs> Shep is on Maui, and we are on Kauai. And while we have friends who go back and forth, Shep rarely comes over here, and we rarely go over there. Got it. And the last time I interviewed you about two years ago, you were working on a jukebox musical. Is that still in the cards? That's still in the cards. As a matter of fact, we just, you know, this very week have had some discussions about it, productive discussions. So while we don't have any uh, any sort of concrete projections on on when it's uh, when it might be mounted, I think we're making progress on it, and possibly sometime within the next three to six months, we may actually have something to talk about. Interesting. So, looking, you know, back at everything, is there anything that you think that people have wrong about you in general? Because I think if you ask the average person who is Todd Rundgren, they'd go, "That's a songwriter that's produced a bunch of hits for other people, had his own hits. He's been in a trillion projects that aren't necessarily connected to each other, but they're all Todd-like." Do you, is there more that you wish people would know? Well, I don't, you know, sit around wishing people know things about me. I, celebrity is a, a dangerous thing to dabble in. And I've always been kind of more of a, a private person. I don't really, when I'm off the road, desire, you know, to have people recognize me on the street. I like to be able to go out and have a meal um, and be left alone, you know, <laughs> to just do that. But it's not the kind of thing that you can, you know, turn on and off. You know, when you gain a certain level of celebrity, you just have to learn how to live with it. 
but I don't actively pursue that aspect. If I did, I would be more like, you know, some of these modern artists where you diversify into your own clothing line and your own uh, perfume or something like that. And uh, the only thing that I've ever pursued in that regard is a would be a boutique line of cannabis products. <laughs> and your ISP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, I'm fine with the level of celebrity that I have. And when I'm home, I don't wor- sit around worrying that people forget about me or anything like that. Okay. I, I appreciate that answer. So in closing, any last words for the kids? Uh, well, n- n- nothing. I mean, it's been a great year so far. You know, everybody came out uh, in great numbers to see the individualist tour and it's generally considered to be a successful experiment and i'm now happy to relax for a little while and let demand build up uh, a bit so uh, i'll be out there a little bit i'll be out there for the uh, for the white album thing and i've got you know one or two other little gigs here and there but um for the most part just tell everyone there's Nothing wrong here, <laughs> just except for the fact that I so rarely take this kind of time off. So, Next up is my chat with Bananarama's Karen Dallin, who just released In Stereo, the first new Bananarama album in about a decade. Bananarama is still one of the best-selling pop groups of all time and still playing major festivals all over the world. Karen spoke with me about In Stereo, the group's early punk roots, and what keeps her going professionally. I first wanted to ask you about your new album, In Stereo, which is your first new album in a decade. How long had it been in the works for? Probably three years. Um, I'm not saying all the tracks were written back then, but we started writing. We we kind of write all the time, but um, I don't know. I just I just feel we weren't in a place where we thought, oh, record companies are going to sign us and we can do this because. You know, we've been around a long time. So we decided to just self-fund it and just see what happened. And um, fortunately, over here, it's it's been fantastic. It's our first top 30 album in a decade. And um, both singles have been played on, uh, you know, BBC Radio 2. They've been, like, the most played records on the A-list, uh, both singles. And it's, it's just gone so well. We played Glastonbury. And, yeah, it's just been uh, really good. So... Hopefully, uh, you you guys will like the album, too. <laughs> I'm sure we'll like the album. <laughs> but that's interesting that you said, and we didn't know which record companies would want to sign us, because few artists have sold more albums than Bananarama in the UK and arguably the world. I'm curious where that mm-hmm. hesitation comes from. Uh, I think it's just because we've been going for so long, and um, obviously, you know, you're relevant. There are young artists up and coming, and... Everything can be done in a bedroom now, and it, it's, it's so different to how it was back in our day. And um, I don't think there was anybody falling over themselves to get to the new Bananarama album, which well, maybe that's us just being, you know, cynical. But, um, you know, I just think you can do things in, in so many different ways. There's so many different ways of funding it. There's hedge funds and raising money, you know, I forget what they're called, but you, you raise money through you know, the internet and all kinds of ways of putting albums out. But we just thought, we'll fund this ourselves. We love music. We've never stopped writing. And let's just see what happens. So I don't think there was any pressure. Um, and we, we, we just went for it. And, you know, it just has been fantastic. 
And you raise an interesting point there when you talk about how people can make music in their bedrooms, but not everybody realizes that you had a bit of a punk background, your connections to bands like the Specials and the Sex Pistols and all that. So, you know, looking back at that scene and seeing things come full circle and all that, are you still Mm -hmm. into the punk scene at all today? Or do you just not look at punk the way it is today as being punk? Well, Karen and I were... You know, any little teenagers when punk happened, but it was a it was a great time that anarchy type thing. Even though we had nothing really to rebel against, we loved the fashion and the whole and the music and very much that do it yourself. Not that you had to go to a, a stage school or be hugely trained. You could just get up when you wanted to write something and be creative. You could just get up and have a go. And I think we took that sort of punk ethic with us when we made our our group in the eighties and. Um, it was strange that Karen and I bumped into Paul Cook in a club, you know, the drummer, and we didn't have anywhere to live. We were living in a hostel, and, and he did offer his, um, where the sex pistols used to rehearse, and we had the, the office above. So we would come in from clubs and stick the guitars in and just thrash around the uh, room. And it was just, it was a great beginning, and it, it's not, it wasn't manufactured in any way. It was very organic, and it was very much... You know, Karen and I came from that sort of background and um, just went to clubs and loved music. So it was very authentic, I think, which it's not necessarily so much because there are so many reality shows now. Um, I don't know how it is in America. I'm sure it's pretty much similar to to here. But um, there's, there's so many options of how you can um, become successful as a musician, whereas back in the day you had to tour and for us, we were lucky it was the beginning of MTV. So, you know, the videos were everywhere. So it made it slightly easier. But we absolutely love touring. Karen and I can't catch enough of touring. And we just, you know, we do it all the time now. And yes, it is the same thing in the States. You hit the nail on the head right there. And speaking of touring, mm-hmm. if the statistics and the research are correct, that you've had 28 UK top 50 hits, when you're mm-hmm. putting together a set list these days, is it pretty much all the hits and then one or two new songs or how do you usually structure it? No, do you know what it was for a while? And then um, in the last maybe three years, we've just introduced because all the fans were saying, well, why can't we hear some more of the duo stuff, not just stuff we did in uh, the early 80s? So now it's sort of half and half and people are always going to want to hear the the massive hits. But Karen and I have made more albums as a duo now than there's a a trio. Bizarrely, Siobhan was only in the group for six years, which seems crazy, but that was, you know, quite a short period of time. And, and the group has been going now 36 years. So, you know, we've a lot of material to cover. And we've started introducing more and more. And we, we're gigging at the moment, just did two shows at the weekend, big festivals. And um, yeah, we do half and half. So there's, there's new stuff from the new album, there's stuff from the, you know, 2000s and, and the 90s. And then we've got obviously the hit. So we've got a, a good repertoire there. And that is longevity. I believe you just said 36 years that very, mm-hmm. very few bands reach, especially at your level. And I'm curious as somebody who had these top, top level hits for a long time. And then you had mm-hmm. a period where obviously it's no longer cool to be Bananarama. And then it's suddenly yeah. cool to be Bananarama again. Yeah. And it's just nothing but hits when you play live. I'm curious when you realized that this was going to be a long-term career, regardless of, of whether or not you were going to have top 40 hits. Yeah. Well, strangely, I mean, I was 18 when I started. So when when we had the hits and you know the, 
we worked with the Fun Boy Three, and we were on top of the pops, and and we didn't really care if it happened, it, you know, it was a long career or it wasn't. But the longer it went on, and especially once we had cool some of the top ten in the states, it was very much like, wow, you know, we can reach out all over the world, and 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 for a long time, we, the hits kept coming, and then when when it first doesn't. Uh, you have a song that isn't a hit it's like oh what's happened here what's going on because you do imagine it will go on forever and you put out an album it's not as successful as the you know ones before but i watched interestingly a duran duran documentary recently and simon was saying how you know when they first had not a a big hit with an album they were like oh my god what are we going to do then they tried another album was not as successful and they thought well okay and then by the third one they just thought you know what i'm going to make the music i want to make work with who I want to work with. We've got a fan base. People want to buy it. You know, they're going to buy it. So it's not that competition to get in the charts. And why would it be? How can you sort of compete with Taylor Swift or, you know, all the youngsters out there? It's not It's not really about that competition anymore. I think it's about a love of music. So either you love it or you're doing it for fame. And I have to say, Karen and I have never really been into the, the fame side of it at all. Outside of Bananarama, is there a professional aspiration or series of aspirations for you? Do you have other projects that you pursue? Or is it really, there's Bananarama, and then there's life outside the group? Um, do you know, it's so weird. This is all I've done since I left school. And it's almost like I don't know how to do anything else. We've done kind of like TV things and cameo, like acting things. But I absolutely love writing music. And it's, it's what I love. And I feel really lucky that I'm able to have done it for so long. Um, obviously, uh, we have kids and yeah, we have a life outside of it, but uh, just love music and love touring. Uh, I think because we didn't tour until 1989 and Siobhan had left, so Jackie joined for a couple of years, Jackie O'Sullivan. We did a big world tour, absolutely loved it, and now we've got our own band and we've been touring for the last sort of 10, 15 years, and, and that's really what we love doing. So, And then having the album out as well and touring with that album, it was just the icing on the cake and we got to play Glastonbury last week so that was just amazing and outside of the UK and US part of my ignorance but what are some of the territories where you've gotten to tour a lot over the years or at least have a big following definitely Asia we're about to go to Japan in August and we're playing uh, festivals called Summer Sonic uh, yes yeah, Summer Sonic um, they're like 50,000 they have like the Foo Fighters and all kinds of different acts so it, it, it's great to have all you know a whole different genre of music they're not not 80s stuff it's it's just loads of different artists from all different eras and um current older ones whatever but it's really looking forward to that so yeah asia definitely france germany yeah uh summer sonic is a massive festival in japan uh, yeah, I believe it's a two day festival and and all that yeah. and, and that brings to mind the question that i often have when artists have fame in japan is were your hits in the UK and the US, the same hits in Japan, or is it different albums charted differently? Pretty much all of the 80s stuff was a hit in Japan. Um, and then we did, Karen and I used to, to go out there with other albums, I think with Pop Life and maybe even Ultraviolet, which wasn't even particularly successful, wasn't released in the UK. But um, yes, it's strange what we, we worked with a Japanese artist um, out there and he remixed a track. And so that, that gives you a sort of, in road into their their culture but they they basically are i don't know 80 90 percent domestic kind of uh music so 
it was great when we broke through is that sort of 10% from outside of Japan. And then looking ahead that you have this new album that's out this month, your first in 10 years, do you mm-hmm. know what two years from now for your career looks like? Or do things really go, you know, one, two months at a time? Pretty much. Um, we've signed with CAA, with, with AEG as promoters, and, and they're really into us touring again. And bizarrely, currently, I want to make another album. It's just like, this has gone so well and we've enjoyed it so much. We just think, you know, I don't think you can put a time limit on something or an age limit. It's just for as long as we want to do and as long as people want to buy it we'll probably make music i never thought i'd say that at 18 but there you go well yeah i I saw that uh your recent quote or uh, at least it was a couple of years ago where you said that age doesn't bother you because you're not trying to be teenagers so clearly you're a group that is going to have longevity if you're not trying to keep up so i guess in closing any last words for the kids I would always say you've got to stick with your gut instinct and, and make the music you want to wait, uh, to make and don't be swayed by, look, if you wear this or if you sing this, you'll be, you know, it doesn't last. It has to come from yourself. It really does. Great. Thank you. You gave me so much to work with and really hope thank to you. see you in New York in the near future. Oh, thank you, Darren. Thank you very much. Last but not least is my interview with Scott Stapp. Odds are that you first learned about Scott through his work with Creed, yet his solo career has been going on for longer than his Creed tenure did. Scott's new album is called The Space Between the Shadows, and it was released the day after I spoke with Scott by phone. I had the chance to learn more about The Space Between the Shadows, while Scott also opened up about a surprising hobby outside of music and family. Hey, Darren, this is uh, Scott Stapp calling for an interview. Hey, how's it going there, Scott? Good, man. How you doing? I am doing great today. Excited to be talking to you. And I know that your new album comes out tomorrow. How long did you spend making this album? Because you already have four singles released from it. I think if you added up the the time spent uh, in the studio and actually writing, it was probably about weeks writing and recording. uh, And then we went to mix uh, and mastering. But uh, I mean, I had, you know, five years worth of ideas and thoughts and, and and notes and and just a lot of a lot of life lived uh to draw from so uh but actual you know like i said getting into uh the studio and and finalizing the songs and and recording them and everything eight weeks and do you know uh which song that you wrote first or at least recorded first yeah the first song i wrote uh it didn't make the record it's called where are you now uh but that song led to uh world i used to know did you record a lot more than you actually put on the album not really you know maybe maybe three or four additional songs which isn't too much but uh you know we uh we we included two b-sides on the uh digital download as well as the album and the vinyl uh but in addition to that maybe three or four other songs and when you decide to make a solo album, did you already have the label attached or did you make it and then start shopping for record labels? It's funny how that situation worked. Um, we were, prior to making the record, about to close a deal uh, with another label. Aside from Napalm, we began speaking with them and met with them and, and uh, just felt like it was a great, a, a better fit and we'd get more personal attention than the uh, big major major label. And I, and it kind of reminded me of, of the scenario with Creed with wind up, uh, years ago, 
Um, and I, and I saw how beneficial that was to be with a smaller label and the personal attention that you get. Uh, and so it was probably at the same time, you know, it, it was actually, the contract was actually finished, but, uh, deals were happening prior to, uh, the music being done. And between this and your last album, you had done some recording and writing with the band Art of Anarchy. Is that one still active or is that just a one-off for you? That uh, is a one-off for me at this point. Got it. Do you have other one-offs that you like to do or is really the focus on the whole Scottstap solo career? Right now, the the main focus and the sole focus is on uh, my solo career and this new record. uh, And I can't wait to uh, share it with the world. Now, when somebody's going to be seeing you live on the upcoming tour, do you mostly play songs from the new album, or is it a mix of things from throughout your career? You know, I'll be playing probably eight songs off the new record, maybe a couple other songs off previous solo records, and uh, and then maybe six Creed songs. It's uh, it's it, it is a you know goes through my entire catalog, but with more of a focus on this new record. But I still, you know play uh, my Creed material as well. As somebody who sold countless millions of records with Creed, is it still thrilling for you to make an album? Because a lot of artists at a certain point go, I like playing the songs live. I don't like being in the studio. <laughs> I, I, I love being in the studio. That's, uh, I mean, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't love every aspect of it. Uh, and so I, I love being in the studio, love making new music, love performing live. And so, you know, I'm fortunate uh, that uh, it all, I'm still passionate about all of it. And are you the sort of artist that's writing every day or frequently, even if there isn't an album to make? I wouldn't say every day, but as inspiration hits, you know, I'll jot down ideas or or record something uh, into my phone or, um, you know, into a program on my computer uh, along the way if I feel it's worthwhile. But, you know, I found over the last, I would say seven or eight years that what I end up using from that are bits and pieces. But uh, yeah, I'm always in a, in a creative state. When something hits me, I definitely, you know, document it. When you're writing music or writing songs in general, is it that you just have the vocal line or do you actually sit down with an instrument and start playing and sing over it? It, it comes in, in both forms. Uh, sometimes it comes with, with uh, you know, me and an acoustic guitar first and, and other time it can come with uh, a lyric or just a vocal melody. Uh, so it comes in both ways. Do you also play piano besides guitar? I, I play well enough on uh, guitar and piano to write, uh, but I'm not uh, by any means a virtuoso or, or a lead. Uh, they're just, I just know them well enough to use them as tools for writing. And ha- has it always been that case? Because the classic kind of thing is that when you see the front man who doesn't have the guitar for pretty much the whole show, and then one song they pick up the guitar to show that they can play guitar in front of the crowd. Right. Yeah, and that's the way I've been, you know, uh, since back in the day. I'm sure you can find online uh, pictures of, of, of me playing in the arenas with, during the Creed days. But uh, that's, that's pretty much how it is with me now. You uh, mentioned having a few songs left over that, you know, you started recording or in different states that aren't on the album. Those are going to be international bonus tracks or you'll just wait to see if there's a soundtrack or what's the deal? Uh, Not at this point. Uh, You know, we'll just we'll we'll see what happens down the road and and uh, 
but right now they're not slated for any kind of, you know, release or anything like that. But who knows? Who knows? Because I really like a couple of them. And I must say that the production on your album is very modern sounding, very heavy, very well mixed. How did you wind up with your producer on this record? Well, actually, it's co-produced by Marty Fredrickson and Scott Stevens, uh, both of which uh, I've been writing songs with and are friends of mine uh, for a long, long time. Um, and so, you know, I called them and we decided to take it to the next le- level. Uh, and they know me very well and, and, and we're friends. And so I, I really felt like I would get honest, direct uh, feedback and also they would push me. And uh, that's exactly what happened. And then away from the music, you're one of those people that people pretty much just know for the music. Do you have any hobbies or any things that a lot of your time goes into besides music and family? Aside from music and family, you know, I get some rounds of golf in every now and then. I know you mentioned family, but I, I do coach my son um, a lot uh, in his baseball, football, and basketball. Uh, and that's, that's, that's pretty much it, man. Family and, and music and, and some golf here and there. I find that more people from hard rock are into golf than not, and it's a very surprising thing. Like, for example, everyone knows about Alice Cooper and they know about Judas Priest, but the band Dirty Heads, they're big golfers, and a lot of people from their local punk scene are into golf. Do you golf at just a local country club, or do you golf with other musicians? Uh, both. You know, I've, I've, I've golfed for years and years and, and uh, would, you know, find courses on tour to, to play at and and when I first started playing, I was a member of a local country club uh, near my home. Uh, and so, you know, wherever I can, uh, and I enjoy playing in, in uh, charity tournaments. Uh, and that's where I get to play with other artists and musicians and, and, and athletes. And when you golf, do you wear the traditional garb or do you have your own version of golf fashion? I mean, I think everyone has their own, you know, personality. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I stayed a traditional golf golf swag and then looking ahead at everything you said before that your solo career is really your focus is that what you want to be doing the rest of your life be a solo artist and be touring or is there you know a passion that we don't know about do you want to write movies do you want to have your own podcast right now i'm you know my passion is focused on writing music so whether that be for me uh or for another artist or uh you know with a you know my old band who knows? Uh, but right now, you know, my focus is writing music. And then looking back at everything from having sold so many records, is there a professional accomplishment that you're most proud of at this point? Oh, wow, man. I tell you, there's, there's been, there's, there's been a lot that, that, uh, you know, I'm very proud of and humbled by. Uh, but I think, you know, it, it would be the Grammy, uh, if I had to pick one, you know, that, that was such a prestigious and, and, and just an accomplishment I never thought that that uh, I would achieve. Well, I've heard mixed things on that. I've heard people say that the Grammy is the proudest accomplishment, and other people say that they don't really need a Grammy to feel validated as an artist. Have you always felt so strongly about the Grammy? Well, you know, one thing about that is is, is you know it's voted on by your peers, um, and so that means a lot to me when when your peers give you that nod. The other awards. Uh, that I really hold dear uh, to me are the Billboard Awards uh, because those are voted on by the fans. And so in in both of those scenarios, uh, there's no politics or who you know involved. And so, no, I've never felt that way. 
And then in terms of peers, are there other artists that you look at that maybe you came up with or you toured with where you go, those, that's my group. Those are the people that I want to be associated with. Man, that's a good question. Um, there's, there's so many, man, you know, uh, I mean, just the rock community. Uh, I, I would say the rock community in general that was around uh, and that came up at the same time as me without singling out anybody. That question comes from the idea that, unfortunately, people lump in Nirvana and Pearl Jam together because they were both Seattle-related and they had hits around the same time. And so you, of course, came up with Creed, and then the hits have continued and the success has continued. So is there a particular artist that you look at the career of and you go, that's what I want? Yeah, absolutely. That would be you too. All that said, Scott, uh, any last words for the kids? Oh, man, just... uh hope you enjoy the music and and uh and just spread love thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with darren paltrowitz on the pure grain audio network more information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com until next time have a great shabbos mm-hmm.